Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au If you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. But I want to let you know something. This Father's Day is actually my third Father's Day, right? I am an experienced dad. I've been around the block a couple of times, at least three to be certain. I'm not surprised by anything anymore as a dad, right? Take it all in my stride, crushing it. But when I became a dad, a couple of years ago, at a similar time, I became a dad, but I also started overseeing the youth ministry here at Gateway Ormo. And I've got to be honest, those two things together over the last couple of years have made me feel older than I've ever felt before, right? They've made me feel older and all I want to be is this young, cool, hip dad. And I mean, look at me, I try everything in my power to try and embody that, but I can't do it. You know, the kids, they told me, Jimmy, your hair's fallen out. So I started growing it long for like a last hurrah because that's what cool people do, right? That's what you do to be young. You know, the, the kids told me that, you know, dads won't get their nose pierced, so I went and got my nose pierced. So that I could be cool and young and hip. No old dads are getting their nose pierced, just this guy, right? They told me that skinny jeans weren't cool anymore, so I went and bought baggier pants. And I'm not sold on them yet because my ankles are way colder than they used to be, right? But that's what the cool, the hip people are doing. If you see me outside of a Sunday morning, I've almost always got a hat on because I think it makes me look cooler, right? I think it makes me look younger. But the reality is I can try all of these things and you know, I try and be cool, I try and be hip and young, but the reality is on a cold morning I wake up and my bones still ache, you know? My bones still ache, I'm getting old. The reality is I can try and be as cool and young and hip as I want to, but as hard as I try, I can't stay awake past 10 p.m. at night. I can't do it. You know, I try and be cool and young and hip and as hard as I try. Actually, this is the cherry on the cake because what happened is last week Sophie said to me, Hey, honey, it's, it's Father's Day coming up in a couple of weeks. What do you want? What do you need? You know what we settled on? We settled on socks, jocks, and a pair of slippers. <laughs> right? That is old dad sort of stuff, right? It seems as, as hard as I try, I can't make myself younger, right? It's inevitable. I'm going to get old. I'm going to be an uncool dad. It's inevitable. And so it doesn't matter what I've got in my hands. It doesn't matter the resources that I have. As hard as I try, I can't fix this problem. No matter what I try and throw at it, no matter the resources I have, whatever, how hard I try, I can't fix this problem. You know what? The story I want to talk to us about today is a similar story for the disciples. Go on, how's that for a transition, right? Socks and jocks to Jesus. (laughs) It's a similar story for the disciples. No matter what resources they've got, they don't feel like they can fix the problem. Nailed it. <laughs> Alright, so before we get into it, I just want to, I want to give us a little bit of context around this passage. I want to do a little bit of a backstory. Now, we know that the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels, right? I'm sure most of us all know that the word gospel comes from an old English word, God, spell. It means good story. If we trace it back further in the Latin, it actually means good news, right? So we've got the gospel. It's written by these four people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the names of the people who wrote the gospels. And, and for most of them, except Luke... For most of them, what they're doing is they're writing about this, this experience that they've had with this guy called Jesus, right? They've all spent time with him. They all know him well. He was their mentor. They were his disciples, apostles, all this sort of thing. And, and for Luke, even for Luke, even though he didn't know Jesus personally, 
Now, he was well-researched. He was a doctor. That means he was smart, I'm assuming. You know, we know he traveled with Paul, and his account of the story of Jesus is actually meticulously and carefully constructed. And, and so for most of these guys, what they're doing is they're writing about their experience, right? They saw firsthand what Jesus was doing, and they write about it. And what's interesting is that the way they write about their experiences is it's all from a different perspective, right? It's all from their each, it's all from their own perspective. That's why we see differences in the gospel. That's why some of them are different. Why we got some parables in some gospels, some miracles in others, stories in others. They're all a little bit different because what they're doing is they're writing about their personal experience with Jesus. They write about what's resonating with them personally. And so Matthew might encounter something with Jesus that was important to him. He's like, right, that's noteworthy. I'm going to put it in my gospel. Mark might have been there, but it wasn't as important to him. And so it's not in his gospel. They're just writing the reflections of their experience from Jesus, right? And that's why there's differences. And you know what's interesting is that despite all these differences, and there's only one story besides the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. There's only one miracle that happens in all of these Gospels that all of them write about. It's the only miracle recorded in each account. And so this morning, I want us to have a little look at this miracle from Luke's point of view. And, and so to set the scene, before we jump into the story, there's a couple of things I want us to know that are happening, right? The first thing that is happening is that just before this story, Jesus is meeting with his disciples and he gives them, the Bible says he gives them all authority and power to cast out demons and to heal the sick, right? So he gives them all authority and power. And then what he does is he sends them out to the villages. He says, hey, you got the power, now you go do it. Go share the good news of the kingdom of God. Go heal the sick, go help the poor. And so the disciples, they do that. And as the story, as the story is starting, this miracle story is starting, what's happening is that the disciples are coming back from their journey and they're starting to unpack with Jesus everything that's happened. The second thing that's happening before we jump into this miracle story, and we read it in, in Luke's account, is that Jesus has just got word that his friend John the Baptist has been murdered. Right, Jesus and John, they're good friends. They actually met each other in the womb before they were born, right? It says John kicked or leapt or something in his mother's stomach when they met. They're good friends. John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And so Jesus gets this news that his good friend has been killed by King Herod. And the third thing that I want us to know is that Jesus was a popular guy, okay? Crowds would follow Jesus around everywhere. Everywhere that Jesus went, the crowds were sure to go, right? Like the Mary had a little lamb, right? Crushing dad life. <laughs> but everywhere that, that Jesus went, the lamb, oh, what am I saying? <laughs> Jesus is the lamb of God, right? But no, everywhere that Jesus went, the crowds were sure to go, right? They followed him everywhere, that huge crowds would follow him. People were drawn to him. There was something about him that was different to the other religious leaders, and so they wanted to be close to him. You know, they wanted to experience what was happening, and so huge crowds would follow him around. And so that's when we get to this story. What's happened is the disciples have come back with all these cool stories. Jesus has just found out that his close friend has died, and they want to talk about it, but they can't escape from the crowds. So Jesus, what, what does he do? He gets in a boat like he does a couple of times in the scripture. He gets in the boat and they sail around the sea to try and get to a nice quieter place. But what happens is they get in this boat and they sail around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And so what happens is the people can actually see where Jesus is sailing. I want to get a map up for us just really quickly. This is fancy Bible college stuff, okay? This is a map. So we can see on the top left-hand corner, there's two where it says the, cover, the cove of the Soar. There's two cities, Capernaum, Gennesaret. We know that Jesus and his disciples are somewhere in that sort of vicinity. And what they do is they get on a boat and they sail around that top northern part to this place called Bethsaida. 
Right? And so what the, what the crowds are doing is they just watch Jesus and the disciples sail around and they do the walk along the shore, right? They do the walk along the land. And so as Jesus and the disciples arrive at the shore of Bethsaida, so do the crowds. And that's where we're going to pick up the story right now. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking at Luke 9. So feel free to open that up. And it says in Luke 9, starting at verse 10, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Right? That's what we've covered so far. But what does Jesus do? Right? It says in Luke that he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. And before we even get into the miracle story, I want us to stop right here. You see, I find that interesting. You know, Jesus has escaped from the crowds, and or Jesus is trying to escape from the crowds, but they persist and they follow him. And, but he doesn't get angry or frustrated or, or cross. Instead, in Luke, it says that he welcomes them. Now, even though it's the exact opposite of what he's trying to accomplish in getting away from the crowds, he welcomes them. And I want you to put you in Jesus, yourself in Jesus' shoes this morning. Right? Imagine you're feeling peopled out, or you're feeling overwhelmed, you want to get away and just unpack it all, right? You just need to sit by, by yourself with some close friends, process it all. And just as you think you've found that peace, everything that's causing you stress, all those people, they come back and they say, hey, we want more, we're not done, we want more. You know, would you have the same response as Jesus? Would you be welcoming the crowd as well? But that's what Luke says Jesus does. He welcomes them in. And this word welcome, it's an interesting one for us, right? It's something we say here every Sunday at Gateway. Everyone who comes to Gateway is welcome. But what's interesting about it is that it's not used a whole lot in the New Testament. It's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. And what it literally translates to mean is that he had compassion for them. Right? Here he is trying to get away He's just gotten bad news about a friend and, and, and who's been brutally murdered and he's wanting to have this conversation with his disciples and disciples are wanting to have a conversation with him and here he is surrounded by a crowd that he's trying to get away from but they just won't leave. In the midst of all of this, his response is to show compassion towards them. Now that's Jesus, that's pretty noteworthy. Right? His response was to show compassion towards him. Let's keep reading the rest of the story. And so Luke continues to say that he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who he needed healing. Then late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the, crowd away so that they, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging. Because we are in a remote place here. He, Jesus, replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all of this crowd. And it says that there was about 5,000 men there. But you know, if we're going to include the women and children, which we should, we're looking probably north of 10,000 people here. So how are they going to feed them? But Jesus says to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave, thank he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now the chances are you've, you've probably heard this story before, right? It's a, it's a famous story, especially in Christian circles. You could probably recite it back to me yourself. But you see, whenever we see a miracle story in the Bible, it's usually not just about the story itself, 
But there's often something else that God is wanting to reveal to us through that story. Something that he's wanting us to see. Something about who he is to us and, and how we relate to him. And so the question I want us to answer this morning is what is God trying to teach us through this passage? What's he trying to teach us? And if we're being honest, there's a bunch of different things that we could pull out of this, this scripture for us this morning. But today there's just three things that I want us to focus on. Three simple things, but three things with really practical challenges for us today as well. And so the first one is, and we've kind of uncovered it a little bit already, but the first thing that I want us to unpack today is that anybody and everybody is welcome. Now we've already established that Jesus shows compassion towards all the people, that he welcomed them in, that he continued to teach and he continued to heal the sick, even when he was trying to get away. But here are the disciples and they're trying to help Jesus out, right? They're trying to help Jesus out by saying, hey, let us turn these people around. Let us send them away to the nearby villages to find food and shelter. Because you see, where Jesus had taken the disciples to this, this place called Bethsaida, it was this remote place, right? It says it in the, in the, in the scripture that this place was Remote. And if you look it up on Google, nothing has changed. A little bit has changed, but not much has changed since the day of Jesus. If you look up Bethsaida on Google Images, you're going to see rolling hills, rolling plains. It's actually beautiful. But where they left, Gennesaret and uh, Capernaum or wherever they were in that place, it was populated, right? So Jesus gets away and he wants to go to this remote place to be by himself where there's nothing, no town, no shops, no food, no shelter, just empty land. You know, if there's ever an excuse to let people know that they're not welcome, it's, hey, I've got no food, I've got no shelter for you, just go, please just go, right? It's a good excuse, and that's what the disciples are trying to initiate for Jesus. You know, I imagine they're starting to get a little bit frustrated themselves that this crowd is interrupting their alone time with Jesus. They want to tell their story of everything they've been up to, and so they say to Jesus, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't send them away because anybody and everybody is welcome. Even at times of inconvenience, everybody is welcome. And, and more than that, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, they're adults, you know, they can sort themselves out. They can come listen to my teaching. They can sort themselves out. They can find their own food and shelter. That's not what he says. But he actually goes above and beyond. He goes one step further. And he says, all right, if they need food, then we're going to feed them. And I think he does this because he wants every person in that crowd, every man, woman, and child to feel like they are welcome, right? That they have a seat in Jesus's presence. That's what he wants to do. He wants everyone to feel like that they have a seat at his table. And, you know, I think that's God's heart for his church as well. He wants everyone to have a seat at his table. And, you know, that's our heart for this church here at Gateway, that anybody and everybody would be welcome. Now, Jesus has demonstrated it for us, but it actually takes us doing something to make it a reality. And I think sometimes the challenge for us is, is to be a bit like the disciples. You know, we think, hey, Jesus, here's the rational decision. Now, this is what we should do. You know, we say everybody is welcome at Gateway from this stage every Sunday. We have an awesome welcome team whose job it is to welcome people. And so maybe we come in like the disciples and we think, hey, it's not our job. Someone else will do it. It's not my role. I've done enough for today. But you see, did, Jesus didn't just welcome when they came to him. He also went above and beyond to provide for them. Now, I know this sounds terrible, but their presence to Jesus was an inconvenience at that moment, right? It wasn't what he was planning to do. He was trying to escape, but he didn't let that stop him from welcoming them in. In fact, he, in fact, he actually went above and beyond and provided for them as well. And so for us to be a welcoming church... 
That needs to be something that each of us owns for ourselves. Now, what does it look like for you to go above and beyond to make this a welcoming place? To reflect the compassion that Jesus showed to those around him. Now, sometimes, it, it sounds silly, but sometimes it feels like Sometimes it feels like too big of an inconvenience to walk across the hall to go and talk to somebody who looks new or somebody that you don't know. Sometimes it's too much of an inconvenience, you know. It's easy to tell ourselves that someone else will do it. Someone else has got that covered. It's easy to be like the disciples and turn away and just say, hey, they'll they'll sort themselves out. But that's not what Jesus does, and I don't think that's what he calls us to do either. Now, Jesus made the effort, and we need to make the effort to anybody and everybody is welcome to Jesus, and that needs to be our attitude as well. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, but it's something that each of us have to own. Now, in order for this to be a church where anybody and everybody is welcome, we each need to play our part. Now, that's our first takeaway. That's our first challenge. What does it look like for you to play your part in making this a welcoming space? The second thing I want us to focus on out of this story is the importance of community. Okay? And I think we all know enough about life to know that community is important for us, but the importance of community is something I want us to pull out of this scripture this morning. It's that meaningful community is important, right? Meaningful community is important. Actually, it's, it's vital. It's necessary, and it's, it's part of God's design for each of us. Now, as Jesus is preparing to feed this massive crowd, He instructs the disciples to have them sit down in groups of about 50. Right, in smaller groups. Now, why does he do that? Why does he make them sit down in groups of about 50? Now, to understand that, I want us to go back just a little bit to what I was saying about this place called Bethsaida. Right? It's a remote, it's a desolate place. And what you need to know about this time is that it's actually dangerous for people to travel alone. It's dangerous for people to travel by themselves. It's much safer to travel in a group of people. You're less vulnerable. You know, we look at the story of the, the parable, rather, of the Good Samaritan probably happened because that person was traveling alone, right? So it's a dangerous part to be traveling alone. And, and so this Bethsaida place, it's about 10 to 15 kilometers away from where everyone else is coming on that other side of the lake, right? So they've all made the journey together as, as a huge group. It's taken a couple of hours. And, you know, I don't know how you would imagine a group of 10,000 people to arrive, but if you've ever been to a stadium, right, like a, like a football game with 10,000 people and you leave that stadium, it's carnage, right? It's absolute havoc, you can't get anything done. And so that's how I imagine they arrived. But how did they leave? How did they leave? I like to think that they left in these groups of 50. Right? The groups that Jesus had made them sit down in. See, Jesus pulled them into these smaller groups to teach us an important lesson about the value of community. Not only would the community help them divide the food between all of them, but it would actually create a safe environment for each of them for their journey home because they could protect one another. They could support one another. They were there for one another. Jesus was teaching us about the importance of community. And, you know, there's, a, there's another story in the Bible that I want us to look at to unpack this a little bit more. Now, I wonder what you think of when you hear the name King David. Actually, yell it out. Let's, let's get some engagement happening. What do you think of when you think of the name King David? What do you think of? Yell it out. King, Goliath, warrior, great. Anything else? Man after God's own heart. Wisdom, anything else? Psalms, what? Adultery, right? That's, that's the scope of David's life, right? A man's after God's own heart to adultery. 
Right, that's what we think of, man after God's own heart, Bathsheba. Right, a lot of good and this some not so good as well. And that's the story that we think about David and, you know, we read it in 2 Samuel, I'm sure a bunch of us know the story, but just to recap, what happens is that David goes up onto his terrace in his palace, it's, I'm sure it's beautiful, he's looking out over the city, and as he's looking out over the city, he sees this woman bathing on her rooftop, right? Bathsheba. I know what you're thinking, it seems like a design flaw. We wouldn't do that these days. No one's putting a bathtub on their roof. But he sees her bathing there anyway. And he's, because he's king, he says, you know what, because I'm king and because I can, I'm going to summon her. So he summons her to the palace. They sleep together and they have a child, right? She gets pregnant. And so David's like, oh, what have I done? And so he tries to fix the problem. And so you see Bathsheba, she's married to this guy called Uriah, who's a soldier in David's army. And so what David does is he says, hey, Uriah's been a good soldier. I'm going to bring him back in the hopes that he will go home, sleep with his wife, and he'll just assume that the child is his. But that doesn't happen, right? Uriah comes back because of his loyalty to David, because of his loyalty to the army. He doesn't see it fair that he would go back and be with his wife in his house. And so he just waits. He just waits for Jesus to send him back into, oh, for Jesus, for David to send him back into battle and so David realizes that his plan's not going to work. He changes tact, and he does send Uriah back into battle. But this time he sends him into the front lines where he's surely going to be killed. That's a terrible story. It's a terrible story. And you see, David is trying to do all of this to hide his mistake. He's building this web of lies. And as we read it in 2 Samuel, we can see his life and his values kind of unraveling before us. Now, but it all stems from this one mistake. I'm not, I'm not talking about him sleeping with Bathsheba. It's actually a mistake that happens before that. Right, right at the beginning of the story in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11, it says, In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Right, David is sent away all of his men, he sent them all away, but he remains in Jerusalem. He sent away his friends, his brothers, the people who would keep him accountable, the people who would say, hey, David, that's a terrible idea. You shouldn't do that. He sent them all away. And it's in this isolation here in Jerusalem where David makes one of the worst decisions of his life. Now, one of the decisions that we remember thousands and thousands of years later, and it doesn't take much to see that we are created to live in community. People are searching for it everywhere. It's one of the greatest blessings of being a part of the church. We have this community, right? A group of people from all different walks of life, all different experiences, stories, backgrounds, united under Christ. And besides the obvious reasons, I actually think community is one of the best parts of being a part of the church. You know, when I was growing up in Cairns, we used to joke around that you could always tell a youth group that was like out in the wild, Right, you could always tell a youth ministry that was out um, in public, like whether that be at the beach or the park or the, or the city centre, wherever they were, you could always tell it was a youth group because if you looked at them, it looked like this weird match of kids that you would never imagine hanging out with each other, right? You could always tell it was a youth group and not just a, a random group of friends because no, they all seemed mismatched, but they were all having a lot of fun and I love that picture of community, right? A bunch of different people from all different walks of life doing life together. And that's how God has created us to be. And so if there's any part of you this morning that is resistant to the idea of community, if there's any voice inside of you telling you that you can do it on your own, let me encourage you to take a lesson from David's story. Right? He was a man after God's own heart. We talk about him being this awesome warrior, this great Christian leader. But when he was on his own, he just didn't measure up. He couldn't do it. 
Now, just like the huge crowds of people would need each other to make it home from the feeding of the 5,000, we need the support and encouragement of community in our lives on our own journey of faith. If you think this is something you can do on your own, I'm sorry to say it, but you're believing a lie. God never meant faith to be lived out alone. The community, it offers you the protection and the encouragement you need when things get hard or difficult. Now, not if things get hard or difficult, but when things get hard and difficult. Community is a thing that helps pull you through. A group of people who say, hey, I've got you. I've got your back. I'm here with you. I'm here to support you. Now, we all need community in our life. Meaning community, meaningful community is important. So how are you making it a priority in your life? Meaningful community is important, so how are you making it a priority in your life? Now, here at Gateway, there's a, there's a bunch of really simple ways that you can help us get you connected into this community here. First off, if, if you've never filled out one of our Connect forms before, then maybe today is the day that you do that. Now, you can jump on the website, you can, you can click on that Get Connected button, you can scan the QR code that'll be on the screen after the service, so it's around the hall in a couple of places as well. It's going to take you to a form where you can fill in a couple of details, there's a bunch of tick boxes on there as well, and you can fill that out, and it's going to help us get you connected. It will come to either Andrew or myself, and we'd love to call you up and help you become a part of this community here. Now, secondly, one of those tick boxes that you can select on that form simply says, I would like to join a life group. Actually, I've got the correct phrasing in here somewhere. What does it say? It says, I would like to become a part of a life group, okay? That's exactly what it sounds like, a group that does life together, right? A life group. It's a community. And if, if you've never been a part of a life group before here at Gateway, maybe you haven't been a part of one in, in a long time, why don't you make today your day to join one? You know, when Sophie and I, when we first came to Gateway about 10 years ago, we didn't, we didn't know anybody, right? We moved from Cairns down to Brisbane and uni students, we didn't know anybody at all. And we rocked up to church and we thought, you know, why not? We, we might as well just sign up to a life group. And, and so we did. And I need you to hear me when I say this, because the reality is, is that was one of the best decisions in my life that I've made, not just for my faith journey, but for all of my life together. Over the last 10 years, Sophie and I, have, we've journeyed with these guys through some of the highest parts of life, some of the hardest years of life as well. And and over those 10 years, people's lives have changed dramatically. Our life group looks very different to what it looked like when we started, but they are still some of my closest friends. And we still get together monthly now because life has got a little bit in the way. And so we meet together monthly. We've got a long weekend coming up soon that we're going to go on holidays for. And it's, it's one of the highlights of my year because this community has become so important to me. You know, there are guys in that group that I've shared some of my biggest struggles of life with, and they've encouraged me through it, they've helped me through it, and, and vice versa. It's a two-way street. And, you know, that sort of friendship, that relationship, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It might not happen in the first life group you're a part of, and that's okay. You can try again. You know, here at Gateway, we have a bunch of different life groups that you can join. We'd love to have you be a part of one. We're always looking to try and create um, space for more as well, and you know, in a, in a couple of weeks, not next week because it's Father, Father's Day, but the week after that, we're starting a new series called Rhythms of Grace, right? And we're just looking at the spiritual disciplines of our faith. You know what? This would be a great series to be in a life group for, right? As we explore the spiritual disciplines, it's a group, a community that can help you keep you accountable, that can help encourage you, that can help love on you as we do that series. And so if you're not a part of a life group and you'd like to join one, make today your day to join one. Do it today. You can jump on that same form and, and click the life group button and it's that simple. 
It's that simple. A meaningful community is important. We were created for it. And so how are you making it a priority in your life today? And finally, the third thing that I want us to pull out of this story this morning is it's actually a line not from Luke's gospel, but from John's account of this story, right? So Jesus has the five loaves of bread and two fish and well over 5,000 people to feed. And so he gets the disciples to sit them down in groups of about 50. And, and then it says in John 6 that Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed it to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and they filled 12 baskets. Right, so Jesus has taken the little that was given to him and he's multiplied it to not just meet the needs of the people, but to exceed those needs. Right, it says when, when they'd all had enough, when everyone was full, when everyone was satisfied, Jesus sent the disciples to collect the leftovers and they collected 12 baskets worth. Right, more than what they started with. And I think some of you here today need to take hold of that. Right, to remember that God doesn't just meet your needs, but He exceeds them. And what He's planted in you is enough. Right, that little seed of faith He's planted in you is enough to see that miracle happen. Right, that seed of love that He has planted in you is enough to see that relationship restored and then some. And so this morning, the, the thing I want us to take away from this miracle is the words that Jesus says to His disciples after He asks them to collect up the leftovers. Right? It's just four simple words. Let nothing be wasted. Let nothing be wasted. And we can read that. We can, we can gloss over it. You know, we can think, wow, it's strange. Why does Jesus not want anything to be wasted? You know, He literally created it out of nothing. You know, the thing is, I don't think Jesus was that concerned about the wasted food. And I think there's a bigger lesson in this for us. It's not just about the food. You know, the crowd was hungry for food and you know, maybe it's 11.16, maybe you're hungry for food right now. And I'm going to wrap up shortly, that's okay. But the crowd was hungry for food. But you know, it's more than just food that we hunger for. If some of you are hungry for wisdom and guidance, you want God to show you what's next in life. If some of you are hungry for patience, right? You need God's patience to help you align with His timing. Some of you are hungry for healing. And maybe some of you are hungry for hope. Some of you are hungry for His joy, for Him to bring His light into your darkness. And some of you are hungry for His provision. You know, just as Jesus provided more than enough for the crowd, just as He exceeded their physical hunger, often He exceeds ours as well. But when He does exceed those needs, when God meets us right where we're at with exactly what we need, when He provides for us all that we need and more, what should our response be? I think it's simple. It's just what Jesus said to the disciples. Let nothing be wasted. Don't waste God's provision for your life. He's a good God, a God that loves to provide for you. So don't waste it. His provision exceeds what you need. So you have to ask yourself, you know, how has God provided for you? How has He exceeded the expectations? How has He exceeded your expectations? What is the overflow of His provision in your life? Now, what are your leftovers that you're not going to let be wasted? Now, has Jesus restored hope for you? Do you have residual hope that you can bring for others? Now, do you have residual joy that you can bring for others? Do you have wisdom that you can enlighten others with? 
Now Jesus says, let nothing be wasted. Use all that God has provided for you. Let nothing go to waste. That's three points this morning. Three points with very practical challenges. First, meaning, uh, first, anybody and everybody is welcome. Now, how can you go out of your way to welcome those around you? Second, meaningful community is important. Now, what do you need to do to prioritize community in your life? Do you need to join a life group? Do it this morning. Three, let nothing be wasted. Now, how has God provided for you? How are you going to share that with others? What is the overflow of God's provision in your life and how are you not going to let that be wasted? Now, these aren't questions that I can answer for you or anyone else can answer for you. They're questions you've got to answer for yourselves. Now, as we wrap up, I'm going to invite us all to stand this morning. Three, three points, three very practical challenges. You know, we're going to sing a song this morning that was just rooted out of a desire to want to surrender to God, right? To want to let go of all things and to put Him first, to say less of me, more of you. It's a song about putting Him first. And as we sing it, I just want to offer up one more invitation for us this morning. It's not necessarily linked to anything that I've said here, but I want to offer us up one more invitation. And I think there are people here this morning that are hungry to see God move in their lives to see His power at work in your life. You know, the crowd was hungry for food, but as I mentioned before, maybe you're hungry for guidance or or wisdom or hope or or healing. Maybe you're hungry for for more joy. And at that moment, and in this moment, you're just waiting for that provision. You don't have the overflow yet, and that's okay, but you want it. You want that overflow. Now, we'd love to be able to stand and pray with you this morning, if that's you. We'd love to be able to pray a prayer of provision over you and with you this morning. And so as the band sings for us in just a moment, I encourage you to make yourself known to our prayer team. Come down the front. We'd love to be able to gather with you. And so if that's you, if you're not at that point of the overflow, you're not at that point of wanting nothing to be wasted, if you're hungry for something of God and you desire that this morning, like His provision, His, His hope, His joy, His love, We'd love to be able to pray that over you today. So that's you. As the band sings, why don't you come forward? Why don't you make yourself known to the team? We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we would love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au. 